This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Joining me today is Seamus Blackley. Now, I've worked with Seamus in my other guise as the CEO of Rebellion in technology for many years. Seamus is a technologist who is the father of the Xbox, but he, like me, is fascinated by the past and the physicality of living in the past. We're going to chat about technology, gaming, quite a lot of eclectic things, and the collection of ancient yeasts and their revivification. Welcome to Future Imperfect. Seamus, welcome to Future Imperfect. Lovely to have you on board. We've known each other for quite some time because we have a, a bit of a track record with the games consoles, and that's something I want to touch on. But you came up with the original idea for Xbox. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how that happened? Well, it's an interesting kind of a thing, that story of the inception of the Xbox, because it's something that's really obvious to people who were in the games industry at the time but seems like a real sort of leap of thinking or something, you know, when you look at it retrospectively. It also seems quite obvious, like Microsoft should have a games console, which is extremely not obvious if you were living in the year of our Lord, 1998. But uh, all games tools were on PC at that time, except some art tools, which ran on fancy, you know, SDR hardware, and everybody basically was using those tools to build even console games. And I was making a lot of PC games at the time. And Sony had come out with an announcement about PlayStation 2. And I had recently had this huge failure trying to ship a metaverse game <laughs> uh, set in the Jurassic Park universe, uh, which again is the sort of thing people do now, but it was new then and it was like terrible and I thought I'd never work again. Uh, it's actually quite a cult game now, which is exceptionally weird. Like when something that you're completely humiliated by 
that you think would end your career becomes a cult classic and people want to remake it. Yeah. We did one that became quite funny because of the end credits song. We did a game called Rogue Warrior in an incredibly short period of time. It was arguably wrongly positioned. As a, you know, it was meant to be a, a parody of the 80s action movies. Richard Marshinko is the main character swearing all the time. Um, and we put together this ridiculous swearing rap at the end of it. And yeah, the game was not well received. It was all right, but it wasn't well received. It's sort of, you know, 50%, 40% reviews. You know, it was one of those weird times. But that's become a cult rap now because it's just filled with swearing. And it is weird what happens and what becomes notable after time has passed. And one of the things we do on this podcast is we try to extrapolate the past and the future a little bit together. So, you know, you talking about that game, which is Trespasser. The name Trespasser, of the- yes. Yeah. And it was incredibly ambitious. And it was trying to do things that nobody had ever done before. And it partly failed, partly succeeded. But it's, as you say, now time has passed. It's seen in a different light. It's seen as quite innovative. It's seen as a magisterial failure. You know, one of those... Yeah. The thing that happens when you try to innovate, and you know, I think a lot about innovation because I'm drawn to these moments when something is brand new. That's the part I like best, you know? But that's also the time that when you sort of foist something on the world, people may not be ready, you know, they, they don't want it. And, you know, what happened there was that we delivered a half-life kind of thing to a world that wanted doom still. I mean, it wasn't finished, it had all these problems. But really what it was, was that I was really adamant and serious about the idea that uh, the kind of feeling that I had playing Ultima, you know, where there was this living world going on, independent of anything that I was doing, and if I made my way through it, uh, I had a genuine adventure, right, of my own, generated by me, and that the new 3D rendering technology, which we had pioneered at Looking Glass, could be used to make that even better. And we had a little bit of that with System Shock. We had a little bit of that with Ultima Underworld. I made a flight simulator that was really all about that, delivering the feeling of flying much more than sort of a technical flight simulation. And it did quite well. It did really well. It beat Microsoft Flight Simulator, which was a big deal at the time. And uh, I was just thinking a little bit too far in the future because it's like people weren't quite ready. And I didn't really do a great job finishing it. And it reminds me, honestly, although this sounds hopelessly self-aggrandizing, and I honestly, I, I promise you, in my mind, I think of myself as absolute shit. So don't take this the wrong way. But <laughs> there's a, a great moment in the very beginning of video games. Uh, Nolan Bushnell and a guy called Al Alcorn, who was this towering genius of early hardware. Al Alcorn is the guy who invented the circuits that could take cheap TTL logic chips and generate a video signal from them with no CPU and allow a game to be played. This is how Pong worked. Pong doesn't have a CPU or a program. Pong is a state machine. It's all timers interfering with one another with a couple of potentiometers. And it looks like a tennis game. It's a great work of genius. And actually figuring out how to repair them, meaning figuring out how it works, is incredibly difficult. People have written literal PhD theses about it, right? It's that clever. Uh, but before that, there was one that is even more clever called computer space, which was like asteroids. There was a field of stars and there's a ship and you had buttons that you could rotate the ship with and you could shoot and there were UFOs that came after you. And you could shoot the UFOs and they would explode and it kept score, it was so clever. And it was before Pong. 
Okay, and it was in this cool spacey cabin. You could look it up, computer space. And it was launched into the world, and it was genius. And if you play it now, you think this is awesome. It really is awesome because it's a modern sensibility of understanding Pong and understanding asteroids and understanding how games work. It's really good. You can see that it's early and it's a bit wonky and doesn't have things quite right, but it works and you can see it's the future. But at the time when it launched, people were accustomed to seeing television shows on a television. People didn't understand controlling something in the television. Then you and I are of an age probably where you remember people looking at a game you'd worked on, possibly your parents, and saying, what's going on? Wait, who are you? What's what? Nobody says that now because the audience is trained, right? Okay, but then people saw this game, which we look at and we would say, what an awesome game. And they didn't see anything. It's like a dog watching television. And so it failed horribly and put them out of business almost. And so Nolan went and said, okay, we need to copy something else as a last try. You know, this tennis for two game, which also had been developed in university. They're both copies of games that had run on big university systems that had been written by people, you know, nerds who understood what was going on and wanted to have a space war. And Pong really worked because suddenly it was something the audience could understand. It was really simple. And it wasn't that the audience were simpletons. It was that you were introducing something really new to them and you have to gently edge them into it, right? And when you gently introduce them to something, they understand it and then they want more and more and more. And then you have the opposite problem of like, what the hell else do we build? And there are no more university games to copy. So we need to hire some people who know how to make new kinds of these things. But what are those people called? And they didn't know to hire. And of course, it's game designers. And like, it all seems obvious, but it wasn't obvious in the 70s. Like, who do we hire? Do we hire engineers? Do we hire artists? Both? What the hell? They're all these people are paying the ass. They never show up on time. They want to work in the middle of the night. Anyway, so my point here, not to self-aggrandize too much, was that I think trespassers suffered from that same kind of naive, honest, genuine kind of hubris about wanting to usher in the future, this vision that I had about what games should be, that I wanted to feel like I was outside. I wanted to feel like if I wanted to be nice to the dinosaurs and sort of walk around them or see if they'd treat me nice, that I could try that. That if I got through an area in the game, it was because I had thought of a way through and not because I had figured out what the designer wanted in the puzzle. And nobody wanted that yet. Now people really want that a lot. And so you look back on it and you say, oh, it was visionary. But maybe it was, because like, that was really the vision. But at the time, it was stupid <laughs> because nobody wanted that. I, you know, it was it was like if you watch Rick and Morty, it was like I was in a pompous factory. Yeah, I don't think you should be so hard on yourself, though, because I don't, I don't think it was wrong. I just think it was just sort of too early. It would be a bit like if aliens came down with a vast new technology. We probably wouldn't know what to do with it to begin with. We, you know, it's sort of a huge amount of power things that would be akin to magic. What, what do we actually want to change here? Uh, we don't know. We'd, we'd have difficulty working it out, even though it was just all laid out in front of us. And I think throughout history, there have been visionaries who have had ideas that are just before their time, or they don't well, have a key well, component. It's also something that one has to learn from. You know, there are examples in all sorts of media of this. And, you know, aliens coming down is a nice analogy. But again, like I'm always lax to sort of aggrandize that way. But if you look at a lot of cult films, Spring to mind are films like Army of Darkness, which was really the first kind of cross-genre horror humor film. I mean, there are others beforehand, and people beat me up for this, but it's seen as a cult classic. It didn't do very well at the time, because when you look back on it, you see all of the ingredients that fuel even, you know, the Marvel movies and DC movies now, that humor, that type of dark humor that Bruce Campbell was able to elicit that they built in that film 
uh, is really foundational now to the point that, you know, I showed that film to my sons and they were really bored with it because it's been so ripped off now and, it, and everything in it is now so mainstream that you won't wonder why it's entertaining at all. But at the time, I remember going to see it and I was the, literally the only person in the theater. I mean, there's so many movies like that. Blade Runner apparently was a flop when it was yeah. released in the cinemas. But now you would think of it as a seminal science fiction moment yeah. in entertainment history. And I think you learn from that. And I think one of the reasons that Xbox worked was because when I got so passionate about this idea that the PC was the tool, and if the tool was the same as the delivery platform, we could win, I had you know, not very much, but I had sufficient maturity to take a step back and say, all right, so what does it actually need to be? And I ended up being a kind of an anti-visionary inside of Microsoft in the sense that there are a lot of people inside of Microsoft who weren't really gamers, who had never owned a console, but who were super excited about getting into games. And it was big and Microsoft will dominate this, this weird internal culture thing. And I was always telling them, no, it can't be Windows. We can't put all these features in. It's not value. The value is that it's easy and instantly comes on and has a lot of graphics power. That's it. That's all we get to do. You get to do one thing, lots of graphics power. And behind that, like the tools, that's it. We don't have to do anything else. No, we shouldn't have controllers that like have gyroscopes in them that move. It shouldn't have any of the dumb ideas. They wanted to have the metaverse in it as the interface, you know, and it's funny. This is coming up again now. Like everybody who encounters 3D worlds for the first time thinks, oh my God, the interface should be that you walk to real places and you do the real thing. <laughs> this is like the fourth time that I had to live yeah. through people having this stupid fucking idea that doesn't work. Yeah, absolutely. People do that. They literally say, oh, and you, you can move your hands around. It's like, that's really tiring. You try holding your hands up for five minutes. Wait, 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 wait. Why, you know, nobody has the arm strength for this. Exactly. And I mean, user interfaces are interesting things and the, the simpler, the better. And one of the things that we do with our designers is we make them watch people who have not experienced the game they're making play something without saying anything because they always want to say, oh, no, no, you turn left there. It's like, no, 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 don't tell them that you're not going to be sitting over the shoulder of everybody playing that game. No. If they want to turn right, they can turn right. But you've got to signal it better or you've got to shut the door, make it locked or, you know, something. Stop telling people how you want them to play the game. People don't realize, and it's interesting, is how much of good game design that really represents. You know, people look back at the kind of golden era in this country of arcades, and it's a bit different in England, where you have like Jez Sin in his like bedroom. <laughs> um, you know, in the, in, in the kind of US arcade tradition, there are these seminal games like Asteroids or Robotron or Pac-Man. And people have this myth similar to the myth of like great scientist Schrodinger, that there's like some great person who like has the vision directly comes up with it. while ultimately having this idea that it's easy to make asteroids or that the idea of three lives had been around forever. No, it had to be invented by a person and it was really hard to make asteroids. And the reason that asteroids is so good is because Atari forced Ed Log to leave the building and they put a video camera on players playing his game while he like beat against steel doors to try to get in to stop them from because it's so painful to watch and then he had to watch these videos of the players playing his game for months and months and months and i think of like clockwork orange right of like you know oh, Ed, you must watch this person fuck up playing your game it's like awful 
but that's what got it into that state of tune. And, you know, mm. if you play an actual Asteroids arcade game, there's so many ports and it's so, uh, it's so trite now. Everything is Asteroids in some way, right? Including yes, like, yeah. the way Link moves in Zelda mm -hmm. is Asteroids. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, and it's, it's absolutely creamy and buttery. It's, it's perfect. And that's the result of a lot of hard work, not some abstraction of genius. And that hard work still counts today. And it involves going through the pain of seeing what actual humans actually do with your puzzle or with your controller or with your, you know, character logic. I've literally heard senior designers swearing that people are idiots because they're playing the game wrong. Mm -hmm. And I've had to stop them and say, no, they're playing the game. You can't play it wrong. You can lose. But that's fine. That's a, that's a gameplay condition. They're not playing it wrong. They're playing it the way they want to. The game, and this is what's great about computer games when they're done right, it needs to accommodate all sorts of different ways of playing the game. I mean, yeah. some, game, some games are very kind of linear in design, i.e. what you've got to do to solve the game to make progress is work out what the designer had in mind and then kind of redo it. I don't like games like that. I particularly like games with emergent properties where... There are behaviors, and depending on what you do, there's a feedback loop. That's the looking glass DNA you're touching right there, brother. I'm with you yeah. all the way on that. But you've come across it because you worked in an agency, in a, in a talent agency for a, for a while, I believe. And we've had people pitch game ideas to us from the movie industry. And they've mm -hmm. said to us, we've got this really great story, these characters, this is the background, and uh, yeah, that'll make a great game. And I say, no, it's the worst thing. Well, the there's right. literally no game there. How about, I've got a great idea for a movie for you. Okay. Um, there's a volcano. Yep. No, that's it. That's the idea of the movie. You know, I think a volcano would be really spectacular. And then you do the movie stuff, you know? Yeah, the problem with that is you're not really owning them that hard because that's literally what studio <laughs> executives say to them anyway. But, is it? Oh, okay, <laughs> right. But several points there. Like, first of all, there is this myth in the games industry amongst the designers particularly that... They have this great design. I think this is true, obviously, film directors and people who write books and all creative people. But, you know, because you have this strength of vision and you've thought about it so much and you want to enforce it on the audience. You want to force it. You're going to enjoy this and I'm going to force you to play it until you understand my genius. Damn it. <laughs> yes. You know, the feedback is hard. But, it, you know, it comes from a real place. And I think this is something special about games that may not be true of other media, at least not recently which is that, you know, back in the aforementioned days where you've got like, you know, Dave Braben and his friends, you know, writing a space game, okay? They were selling those games to themselves. The whole audience of people who owned a Spectrum, nobody owned a Spectrum who wasn't going to understand like a 3D, you know, spaceship made of lines. It's just yes. true, right? Very good point, actually. And, very, very specific audience, yes. And so... Or Virus, which is my favorite of his games, right? Which I don't know if you've played. Yeah, yeah, I have played it. Played it and lost a lot. Well, it's impossible. It's yeah. fucking terrible, but it's beautiful. <laughs> but playing Virus is like eating hot chilies that taste really good. It's killing you, but you can't stop. So there's a baseline of this idea that we're making the games for ourselves. And fuck the civilians. Fuck the normies. Like, they just don't get it, right? Except now, there are no more civilians right and we're making games for different people and they can say different things and they can say more than that and we've gone through a lot of those old ideas that are just for us yeah. but the attitude of like i'm making a pure design that only people who are the other game designers can get right that's still there it's true of like film people television people 
book people, everyone, right? It's called being a pretentious ass. And it's <laughs> okay. It's <laughs> with respect to the Hollywood shit. So my business, when I was uh, at this talent agency where I was, you know, like a, a partner and a division head was I was financing games. That's what I was doing. I was hijacking the machinery of film finance and pouring money into games. Uh, I had no interest whatsoever in hearing game pitches from anyone besides game designers. But as a kind of a tax of being able to like use the phone number from the big talent agency and the yeah. email address, right? I had to listen to a lot of these. <laughs> and one of the things that we helped to finance and get out was Guitar Hero. Right. Alex Regopoulos and Harmonix and a bunch of my old friends from Looking Glass there in Boston in Central Square. And that was a game that was at the same time so successful and also so accessible that it really released that special DNA of everyone believing they were a game designer. So the agency had a lot of music clients and other people who really wanted to have their own guitar hero. And, you know, couldn't we have like a guitar hero with a piano for this famous piano person or a guitar hero with like bass for this famous bass player? And you can guess who these might be. So I had meetings with these people who I adored, right? Musicians who I loved, who I'd grown up with. And I had to sit in a room with them and listen to them pitch me terrible, ignorant game ideas. And I had to be like super nice to them. And I was, and it was, and it was fine. And, and there are like funny stories that would come out of this, including when uh, I had in the 1980s, my big crush was uh, on Jane Weedland from the Go-Go's. Okay. That was like, that was for whatever reason. Okay. That was, that was it. And then she was in the Bill and Ted movie. So for a couple of years, I was like, wow. And then I forgot entirely about it. And then one day at the talent agency, sit in my office and I always had guitar hero running on, you know, screens in my office. And I would always invite people to come in and try guitar hero. And somebody starts playing guitar hero. And I look up and it's Jane Weaver. And it was like the moment in Ratatouille where the food critic tries the Ratatouille and it zooms back to him as a child, like getting hurt on his bicycle and his mother makes him the Ratatouille. Except for me, it was like a zoom back <laughs> to like my high school crush. And I was absolutely flabbergasted, couldn't speak, which she found hilarious. Uh, but uh, there were other times when I wasn't so kind, you know, with people who, and there were a lot of people in Hollywood who were a little bit more mercenary about their opportunism. And, you know, I was just straight up rude to them. And I would say things like you just said. If, you know, an actor, for instance, I would say, if somebody who had never watched a movie, who, if you asked them questions about movies, didn't even know really how they were made, came to you insisting that you act in a film that they had made, never having watched a film before, would you feel disrespected? Because that's how I feel now. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, I presume that went down quite well. Maybe it didn't go down well. In a lot of cases, a lot of these people are surrounded by shells of ass-kissing sycophants. <laughs> so if you happen to be somebody who actually tells them something honest, sometimes it's really great. And I actually became friends with a couple of guys. You know, because they respected you giving them honest feedback. Well, I had no horse in the game. Like, I didn't care, you know, if Jim Cameron ever made a game. I don't care. Like, you know, you could get a licensed Avatar games forever. Like, I don't care. Like, that was a shit game. Why did you let them make such a crap game? He's like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. Then you become friends. It is a very different industry. There are areas of crossover. VFX and the technologies they use more and more are being used in, in games as well. But there's so many differences. Oh, but there was a great period 
where we had invented motion capture and perfected it for games, yeah? Yeah. And then certain Hollywood people started to pick it up. And I would have these crazy out-of-body meetings with big-name Hollywood guys coming to me. And I had one of these meetings, actually, with Warren Spector of System Shock and and Epic Disney fame, who was my first producer. He was my first producer on, on, I think it was Ultima Underworld. And so I'm sitting with him, and we get this pitch from a big-name Hollywood director for this idea. And he's selling us motion capture like he invented (laughs) mocap. And we're just looking at each other like, do you feel drunk? Like, are we being gaslit? This is craziness. Yeah, these things are quite surreal because there's a confidence that goes with being in Hollywood, which I think is perhaps misplaced when it comes to technology entertainment that is the games industry. They, they actually literally don't know what they don't know. And that's incredibly dangerous. But, you know, at the same time, to succeed in Hollywood, especially, look, being an actor is a really hard job. You're judged for you are it's not you know sort of like being judged for your work which we're more or less used to right Mm. and you know the comments on forums about things that we've done you're being judged for literally yourself uh it's really brutal and so there's a kind of a shell these people build up which i think is probably quite healthy but it makes them weird and that self-confidence kind of has to come from that you know a lot of cases if you dig under it a bit you find a, a real person who's pretty cool But yeah, it's definitely there. And I was also around, interestingly enough, during the transition from before games were a much bigger business than film to after that, the kind of transition. I had one great experience of um, having another, you know, really big film director in my office at the time. We had this sort of big, expensive office tower in Century City, which is basically Beverly Hills. And across the way from our office was a mall that had a GameStop in it. And this was the Friday of the release of a Modern Warfare game, maybe Modern Warfare 2. And it had like a billion and a half dollar opening weekend. And there was a line around the corner of the mall from the GameStop. And this had stopped happening in film, you know, years before. And I had the pleasure of having this director in my office and getting to point out to him that the mantle of of supremacy had moved on from film. Yeah, they still don't acknowledge yeah. that. But it was a great moment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, in your experience, before we move on from Hollywood, are there any famous people that are actually quite good gamers and secretly love the tech but don't admit it? I know there are some more recent actors that are very into their tech and their gaming. I think Henry Cavill is considered to be a bit of a game player. But was there anybody else in your experience that was like that? I think that, you know, games are mainstream culture now. So I think it's probably more likely it's exceptional for anyone below a certain age not to be a gamer mm. Hollywood. Yeah. You know, the most genuine uh, and probably surprising super hardcore gamer in Hollywood was Steven Spielberg, who right. not only had a missile command in his office, you can easily find a picture of that, but he was really, really good at missile command. <laughs> if you'd go to his office, you know, in the 90s, when I started working for DreamWorks, he had two of those big plastic three and a half inch crispy disc boxes filled with games next to his desk and two games computers. And that's what he primarily did during the day. He'd work really, really hard on the pictures and then like take time off when we needed to play games. And he was really good. He knew everything. Like he knew the Konami cheat codes. Like, it wasn't like he was pretending to play games like to be a cool guy. He actually fucking knew. And it was totally brilliant to see. 
Well, he's gone up a few notches in my estimation then. That's great. He had a game deal with Electronic Arts that I didn't work on. And uh, I heard that it was ending. You know, so I thought, okay, you know, he's my friend. I worked for him. And then when I was at CAA, it was a client of the biggest client of the agency. I would go to these meetings and they'd have all the agents around and I'd have to go. And he'd be like looking at me making faces because he was like, you shouldn't be an agent. Right? <laughs> so I thought I'd call and tell him that maybe his deal was going to end. So I called his lawyer. He's this great guy, Harold Brown, who's the guy who invented structured finance for pictures for ET. And Harold tells a great story that it was all done and it was complicated stuff, structured finance, all these financial rules and banks and insurance and putting all those things together to get the money to make the film so that it was outside of the studio paying for it. So Stephen could do what he wanted, which is a great idea. And then Stephen goes back to Harold and says, I want ET's head to be able to move up and down. So I need more money. Harold's like, oh. So he had to go open everything all up again and get more money. Anyway, so I called Harold. So it wasn't available. So then I called the head of the agency, my boss. He wasn't available. I'm like, all right, you know, I'll call Stephen. So I call Stephen, picks up the first ring. Hey, I was like, Stephen, like, so I tried to call Harold. I tried to call Richard and they didn't pick up. And you pick up on the first ring. And he's like, Seamus, you don't understand. I have these guys working for me so that I can just be sitting around when the phone rings, I can just pick it up and hang out. <laughs> oh, that's really wise. Yeah. She's a real gamer and a really good guy. Right. In a complete change of tone, I want to hear your story about this, um, this ancient yeast, because I am fascinated by things coming back from the past. I, I was really intrigued and I, I would quite like a few more details, but do you want to sort of explain what you managed to do or achieve? Well, again, like, you know, you make it sound like it was intentional, but you know, none of these things are, right? But, you know, a lot of guys, probably a lot of people that you know, and it's strange, it's predominantly men in my experience. Because, you know, I, I would go to, I started baking bread a very long time ago. And what happens if you bake bread and you're a nerd is that you start thinking, oh, I should make sourdough bread because you have to keep this starter alive and it's sort of science-y, it isn't that interesting, right? And so you start doing that. And I would go to get, you know, fancy sort of flour, which has been a thing in the UK for quite some time. Uh, but in the US, it's a little bit new. And so I go to these specialty mills here in Los Angeles or in Seattle, and it was all male programmers and scientists. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm just, I guess, I guess I'm just the same as everyone. And where this progresses, like, I think there are like kind of two main branches of nerd baking. Uh, I took one, which is toward biology. And the other one is guys who build really complicated outdoor ovens. And you can easily, you know, see this clear. A split in the community. It's an evolutionary tree of yeah. nerd baking. And yeah. those are two major branches. All right. Uh, so I thought, all right, well, I've always been, uh, you know, an enormous fan of uh, medieval history, you know, which is why probably I got into Dungeons and Dragons and all this crap that now, you know, seems to have consumed the world. Uh, but at the time, of course, that we got into these things, we were very unpopular for it. And so, you know, it seems very prescient of us to have chosen to be in the games industry, but not at the time. So I thought, okay, it would be a real accomplishment if I could bake a loaf of bread as well as your average 12-year-old in the 1300s. Like if I could be as good as just a regular farmer in the 1300s, great, let's say in Poland. So rye bread, that's what I'll try to do. So the first thing I needed to figure out how to do was to collect natural yeast from the environment, okay? And it comes from all over the place. I mean, the, the yeast obviously is an animal that lives in the world and eats grain, so it lives on the grain in the world. It's on the plants. 
And so when you actually collect the grain and mill it into flour, it's already in there. So you can just kind of like get it wet and it happens, which is probably how fermentation was originally, you know, developed by humans because it happens automatically, which is lucky. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Um, the very lucky thing, actually, I mean, without a food that you could grow and then store without any kind of preservation and then grind up later and make food that could sustain you through the winter, you know, who knows what would happen to us. And without the fermentation, you can't really make it into something edible. And you can't make it into something sufficiently nutritious if that's all you're eating. Anyway, so you have to go find out how to collect that. So I did the physicist thing and I went and, you know, learned a lot about the microbiology and the biomechanics, fermentation and wild yeast and those yeast cultures. And I started collecting wild yeast all over the place. I collected it, you know, behind the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and like all the different interesting places. When I'd go visit family in the UK, collected it there. I did what is now sort of considered to be like a seminal yeast collection, which is a fucking weird thing for me to say, in Buckinghamshire, actually, uh, that involved a muntjac, and started learning to bake with that. And I got spilt from the same field that I collected the yeast in and uh, found other people of similar mindset in the UK, actually, one near you. Uh, a couple in Northumberland, a couple by Bristol, by Swindon, and uh, Great White Horse, and kind of taught myself how to bake this primitive bread. By primitive bread, I mean that you sort of mill this grain yourself, and you don't really extract very much out of it, meaning you leave a lot of the bran and the other stuff in that makes it hard to bake. And you literally just use water and salt and air. And usually when people try to do this, they make these bricks. You know, it's a lot like Adobe house material. (laughs) And to learn the skills necessary to make a fluffy loaf of bread that your medieval farmer husband wouldn't beat you to death with a wooden hoe for uh, when returning from the fields exhausted is quite hard. But I figured out how to do it. And uh, I could do it consistently. And my family suffered through this. The lovely Caroline you just saw was accosted by horrible bread for many months and claimed that it was delicious. So (laughs) 
but once I had figured out how to do that, I had started kind of, you know, posting this on social media, largely because there's a trend on Twitter called the flower report, where people post pictures of beautiful flowers all over the place, you know, horticultural things, right? And so I started kind of low-key trolling it with F-L-O-U-R report. Right. And people started to be interested in this. And as a result of that, one of my friends who I had known from Sierra Online, a guy who had worked on King's Quest, games like that, uh, who had, after leaving the games industry or retiring, become an award-winning microbrewer, sent me a yeast sample that claimed to be from ancient Egypt. And he wow. heard that uh, I had had a hobby of reading hieroglyphs and writing them for decades um, since I was an undergraduate. I used to take notes in meetings in hieroglyphs because nobody else could read them. And he remembered that and he thought, oh, you'd enjoy this, this ancient Egyptian yeast. And so I was like, oh, cool, interesting. And I already know how to bake this ancient style bread, so I'll try it. So I baked a loaf of bread using emmer, which is this sort of primitive wheat, unmanipulated wheat that existed and the Egyptians and actually the Romans used for bread. And it came out great. And like a million people liked this post. Uh, but also along with that came a huge amount of derision from two important camps. The first was biologists who said, how the fuck do you know that's ancient? There's no way it's ancient. It's obviously just contaminated. You're out of your mind. Stop. And Egyptologists who said that, plus also that's not how the Egyptians baked bread. And ancient Egypt lasted 5,000 years. What era is it from? You don't know what the hell you're talking about. Shut up. Okay. I was like, cool. <laughs> uh, my wife, ever pragmatic, said, you know, they're right. I'll never forget it. And I thought, okay, I could either like sink into despair here or, you know, try something else out. So I reached out to the two loudest voices who were doubting me. And I said, fine, then let's figure it out. How do we get a real sample, you know, biology guy? And, you know, where should we get the samples from and from what era, Egyptologist? And so we actually became pretty, pretty fast friends and developed like a methodology for trying to extract dormant yeast and bacteria from inside the ceramic matrix of pottery that had been used for brewing and baking. You know, bacteria and yeast, as you may know, can go dormant when they're dehydrated. You know, yeast has actually been exposed to the vacuum of space and then brought back from orbit and, you know, and grows. And many bacteria can do the same thing. So it's reasonable to imagine that in the dry climate of Egypt, a vessel being used to brew beer, for instance, would have had in your unglazed like very, very low quality ceramic vessels. So when they get wet, the water soaks all the way through, carries with it the microbiology of whatever's in it. And when it's thrown away in these giant trash heaps, it dries out and in the middle of it, it's protected from the environment, right? It's, it's protected in these little ceramic cells. So we, uh, we developed and tested a technique for kind of a fracking that, not really a fracking, but sort of an, a liquid extraction of those dormant cells from inside the pottery. Because if you scrape, and, and a lot of people say, oh, you scrape some pots in the museum, and what you get then is like whatever microbes are in the museum dust and whoever touched it over the centuries of it being moved from Egypt to wherever the fuck it is now where it was looted from. So we did that, and then Dr. Love, Dr. Suna Love, convinced a bunch of you know very serious ethological collections to let me in to do the sampling, which was remarkable because who the fuck am I? And worse, you know, when you're a physicist, you think you know everything. And so, you know, there's a kind of an arrogance that, you know, 
I should be careful about. So she got entree into a couple of really important collections. And we practiced all of this. And I went first to Boston. I went to Harvard. I went to the Museum of Fine Arts, which has a very extensive collection of ancient Egyptian artifacts uh, looted with the help of Harvard uh, in the 1800s. All of this is horribly stolen, obviously, from, from Egypt. And the next thing I knew, I was having, you know, archaeologists handing me 5,000-year-old brewing vessels like I knew what I was doing. And I was like, of course, yes, of course, we'll just do this sampling now. I'm thinking, fuck, 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 fuck. And uh, so I did it carefully. You know, we get into sterile gear and use sterilization lights because the material itself isn't sterile, but we assume that what's inside still is. So we want to be careful when we, like, extract it. So we got a, a lot of samples, sent them back to the University of Iowa, sent them to Harvard, biology labs, and started to extract what was in them, different strains of bacteria, yeast, separate them, analyze them, get them ready for DNA and RNA analysis, which is still going on now. And I took a few and I, I started to see what they behaved like, uh, you know, in a baking context. And that's really where this all grew out of. And then I thought, okay, well, now I need to figure out how to bake like the old kingdom Egyptians, which I think is the most interesting part of Egyptian history, which is when they were building the Great Pyramid, which is just an extraordinary time. And, you know, they'd have 50, 60, 70, 80, 90,000 workers uh, at a time working on this huge public work. And if you read what those people had to say, I mean, they were really proud of this. It was like this crowning achievement of their civilization. And this is in a world where nobody had even built anything out of stone really very much yet. And here they are building a thing that they call the horizon of Khufu, because it's literally modifying the horizon. Uh, there are a lot of them. They need to be fed. There are cities they build just for the workers and huge, like, you know, football pitch sized bakeries made to feed them because bread was the main source of protein and calories in this culture. And the baking was done uh, before the invention of the oven. So this is pre-oven baking. <laughs> uh, but that doesn't mean it wasn't sophisticated. It was very sophisticated baking. It was just the oven wasn't appropriate for this. Uh, and later they used the oven for all sorts of breads. The Egyptians loved bread. And so I found a potter and we started to make the types of pots that were used in the, the old kingdom to bake bread. And it worked. Uh, and so as near as I can tell, you know, we're on the path to exactly recreating this food. So it's identical. So you can actually share the same food that the guys building the pyramids would have had. Do you think it's going to taste different than oh, well, modern artisan bread? No, no, no. It, it already tastes different. The yeast that, that I've collected and used so far tastes different, behaves differently. It ferments in a different pattern at different temperatures than, than other yeast. There are a lot of varieties of yeast. It could still be just contaminant yeast, but it's very different from the other yeasts that people use, and the techniques are different. And the techniques are compatible with what you would do if you lived somewhere with, a, you know, the average daily temperature was 35 or 40, right? Um, so it has to ferment very hot, and it likes that. That's absolutely fascinating. Now, the thing for me that fascinated me about this is that you're actually time traveling by doing this. You, you're tra traveling back and you're experiencing, uncovering, recovering things that your rivals who are poo-pooing the yeast or who were saying it's the wrong part of the Egyptian you know, history and they have become subsequently become friends. You, you're actually saying, OK, uh, I accept that criticism. Now let's continue and try and solve the problem. And that is exactly what computer games are like as well. That, well, that's where it comes from. It, it comes from the testing we talked about earlier. My response to that was like, okay, playtest hates it. Let's go yeah. talk to the playtesters and let's see what they're doing. Yeah. And the reaction you learn after being burned a couple of times, because at first you don't listen to playtest and you ship the game and it's crap. And I've done that 
you know, we talked about trespasser and okay, we're not going to do that again. Yeah. But you learn from your mistakes. And one of the reasons why society, I think, has progressed is that there are enough of us that do learn from the mistakes. We try not to repeat too many of the same mistakes. One of the My reasons is fresh mistakes. You want to make fresh, piping hot mistakes. The, the history of the world is, is basically paved with people walking on mistakes. I mean, it is what it's all about. But one of the reasons I wear armor and ride horses so much is because it is a form of time travel, because horses are broadly the same. They might be a bit bigger these days than they were back then. But um, wait a second. Do you, do you joust, I, sir? I do, yes. Yeah, oh, joust okay. and take place in tournaments. and. So do I, in fact, yeah. here, here oh. in the US. Yes. <laughs> we should have to meet in the list. But I, I train the horses as well because I think there's a whole bunch of forgotten skills that have transformed into dressage a little bit and become slightly changed. And I really want to try and recover or have my attempt at recovering. The, the thing, it's interesting that you bring up the list, but I think that, you know, uh, a horse that knows how to joust and, you know, that understands what's going on. There's something very natural about it for the horse. The horse has a job and it's a kind of a bonding. And, and I mean, you, you know this all the time, but you know, the thing happens, especially, you know, if you're practicing, you're just doing rings and you know, you get to the end and the horse will know if you've hit all the rings and, you know, and Merlin always, you know, look around and like bite at my toe. Like, how do we do? How do we do? And he wants to know what I think of how we did and should we do it again? And if we need to do it again, he wants to do it again, and he's not going to let me stop. So we have to put the rings up because he needs to do it again. And the thing is that it's so, it's so natural. It's the thing that the horse wants to do. It's something that's built into this system, and we lost it. And and I think that's the same thing, you know, with the ancient food and a lot of these techniques, even the pottery, you know, and the stonemasonry as well. You know, it is time travel in a way. And there was a there is an exhibit. I've I've loved Egyptology for a long time, and I'm that asshole who goes to like the British Museum and like translates the hieroglyphs in front of everyone and pisses everyone off. But there was an exhibit when they were redoing the the inside of the building, the foyer, and they were also restoring the front. I guess it was in the 90s, and they had to hire a lot of stonemasons in order to do this. And inside, when they were putting all those glass tiles up, they had an exhibit of the stonemasonry tools. And next to the stonemason tools was an ancient Egyptian stonemason tool set. And it was identical, except that the chisel was copper. That was it instead of steel. And it's like, God, you know, look, we've, we've like, we had these skills 5,000 years ago and they atrophied and we have to remind ourselves of them and draw like 10 people from around the world who still remember how to do this because we've almost, almost lost it. But when we return to it, we get to the same asymptotic, like, you know, tool set that the ancient Egyptians used. And so that, in that sense, all of these things are time travel. But moreover than that, I mean, there's something special about the Bread Project in the sense that this is a living thing that we are bringing back. And so for a people who believed in, in literal reincarnation as a religion and who hoped and prayed for reincarnation, I think we're giving them the best version of that that we can. And that's really magical, right? It's like, okay, yeah. well, we can't bring back the baker, but we can bring back her starter, which sounds really ridiculous, but that was her entire life, right? Her business, her family, everything depended upon that. And she put her effort into that and she had hers. And it was what, you know, made the entire business work. And we can have that back and we can respect those people by trying to do the things that they did marginally as well as they did so that modern people can see that these weren't just simpletons living back in the Stone Age with no jets. 
that the fact that they didn't have jets wasn't because they weren't smart. It was just that we weren't there yet, right? We weren't ready yeah. for them. I 100% agree with that. One of the things I try to do on my YouTube channel is, is help people understand that people in the past are exactly the same as us, just with different different surroundings. You know, they, they were just as good at problem solving. They just didn't have the same problems that we have. They had different problems. And and if we were to go back in time and and forget all the things we know about the modern world, we would probably try and solve the problems in exactly the same way. And they're all human beings. And I think sometimes the media likes to portray people from the past as really stupid, really dirty, really savage and uncaring. And elements of that have existed throughout history. But the vast majority of people were probably doing what we're all trying to do, which is live a fairly respectable, decent, friendly, safe, peaceful, happy life, just in different circumstances. Well, it's man bites dog, isn't it? It's that the media want to report like, oh, look, here's an example of an ancient person being smart, because obviously that was extraordinary. And, you know, I I call it temporal (laughs) bias, you know, because if you really think about it, it was much harder to accomplish any of those things. And so my contention is that they must have been actually much more clever than we are. I have a suspicion that they probably were smarter. So here, do this calculus. Cool. Do this calculus. But first, I'm going to give you a horrifying toothache uh, and I'm going to break your ankle. Now do it. Now do it while you're sick. And, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I guess that's right. Yeah. You know, now invent calculus and then invent paper money. No, you didn't know you did that. Okay, go read. I get angry about it. More angry than I do about movie stars pitching game ideas, actually. You're actually disrespecting people who deserve our respect, people who work hard to get us where we are today. And when we don't recognize the shoulders that we stand on, it's exceptionally disrespectful and dangerous. We think that these things are all automatic. It's kind of what disturbs me about a lot of the fascist movements that I see today in the world. They're largely driven by people who think that no matter what happens, if they go and riot and shoot people and like try to bring down the government, that you know the convenience store will still have their favorite drink in it. And they really think that because that's how it always has been. They don't understand how delicate a balance all of this is and how much we owe to the hard work of people who, who set things up to be proof against those kinds of childish behaviors. Yeah. And history shows us that civilizations wax and wane. You know, the, the, the ancient e- Egyptians at some stage changed from being yeah, world in the waxing power. period always. That's the key is yeah. to live in the waxing period, right? Yeah. If you're going to travel in time or live in a, an interesting time in history, try and live in one of the yeah, growth phases growth of an yeah. empire. Don't live in the collapse when the, the vandals are descending on ancient Rome and, right. and basically in the, there's no grain left and everybody's murdering everybody. Yeah, and in that light, before my company wanes, I need to go back and be CEO again. So Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, look, it's been absolutely lovely talking to you. I mean, sure, we could have and more chats way, about... When yeah. I'm in England next summer, I'm going to come visit you and you're going to lend me a ring lance. Absolutely. Yeah. And show you my horses and show you the facilities that we, we do and some of the things I'm, I'm trying to do. It'd be, uh, be lovely to get you there. Yeah, so definitely do that. being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.